This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon, Jane McNaughton here with you today. Coming up, grassroots opposition to the expansion of renewables across regional Australia is proving to be a major bottleneck in the clean energy transition. The pace of approvals has fallen and projects that have been approved are facing lengthy delays, such as the Western Renewables Link. But a highly anticipated review by the Energy Infrastructure Commissioner, Andrew Dyer, could change that. That report is expected to be released today. I'm... I'm it's meant to be released right now, in fact, and that's set to include new rules to improve community engagement and a blueprint for the future of wind, solar and transmission projects. So I will bring you the latest on that once it's announced and we've got some more information, but I'd love to know what you think should be in that report. The number is 0467 842 722. What needs to be done to make sure that Uh, communities are on board with renewable energy projects and the transmission lines that come with them. Also today, the Victorian Labor Hire Authority is investigating a number of labor hire companies providing workers to meet uh, processing facilities in Melbourne after it found they were operating unlicensed. And last week, Australia's competition regulator announced an inquiry into supermarket prices and their relationship with farmers. So what benefits would a mandatory code of conduct have if it was enforced. We'll hear how the mandatory horticulture code for wholesalers has affected that sector. Shoot me through a text on 0467 842 722 and I'll just read a couple that we didn't get the chance to get to uh, yesterday with our January rainfall figures. You can also continue to text those in if you hadn't quite got your data sheets in order yesterday. Uh, We had Mick saying 154 mils at deep lead in Vic since Christmas Day. Thank you for that, Mick. Uh, Rob from uh, Burnawang uh, between Elmore and Rochester, December 23 rainfall to Jan 24 um, is uh, 64 millimetres, sorry, December 23 rainfall, 64 mils, January 24, 129 mils to 193 for the two months. Thank you for that. And Jonathan Ruffy has sent through a country, all rain, country hour rainfall report saying, good afternoon, we had 164 mils for January, even got bogged last week, thanks to uh, a local sheep farmer for getting, uh, getting him going. Again, that from John in Ruffy as well. 0467 842 722 if you'd like to shoot me through a text. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The Victorian Labor Hire Authority is investigating a number of labor hire companies providing workers to meat processing facilities in Melbourne after it found they were operating unlicensed. Victoria Labor Hire Licensing Commissioner Commissioner Steve Dargable says the authority is also investigating what appears to be underpayment and poor treatment of a number of meat processing workers. We've attended a number of meat processing facilities and identified uh, several that uh, we're concerned that labour hire providers have been unlicensed and further that the, uh, there's non-compliance in relation to uh, the workers, that people haven't been paid properly, that there are concerns about accommodation and safety. So um, the authorities uh, got active investigations with a number of meat processing facilities in Victoria. How many facilities are we talking about here? The... The subject of this story today is a, uh, an active investigation involving a uh, poultry facility and an active investigation in relation to a large red meat. 
processing facility. And how many labour hire providers have you identified that are operating unlicensed? We've identified several and in connection with the concern that they're unlicensed is that the workforce is not being treated properly. We've put the industry on notice that the authority is focusing on the meat processing industry and we're keen to ensure that all meat processing facilities in Victoria are using legitimate labour hire providers and not dodgy unlicensed providers. So you're concerned that some of the workers employed by these labour hire contractors are not being treated properly. You mentioned they might be being underpaid. Roughly how many workers could we be talking about at this point? It's not a small number, but I'd I'd prefer to skirt around the detail whilst we're concluding our investigations, if that's right. Okay. What is the process from here for the Labor Hire Authority to to have a look at that situation? The Labor Hire Authority has got an active investigation underway. The authorities' inspectors have powers under the Act to carry on those investigations, their normal business regulatory sort of powers to gather information, interview uh, people, get information and um, take appropriate compliance and enforcement action if necessary. So there are penalties for companies if they're operating unlicensed. What kind of penalties could those companies could be facing? For individuals, it can be uh, over 150000 and for businesses, it can be over $600,000 per breach. So they're not insignificant penalties. And the premise is that breaching the Act should not be a cost of doing business. Um, there needs to be a significant deterrence to stop people using dodgy labour hire providers. Are there consequences for the meat processing facilities that have contracted out to these unlicensed providers? We're still concluding our investigations and it's too early to say what um, actions the authority will take in relation to our concerns about unlawful behaviour. But I can say broadly that um, there are significant consequences for processing facilities or businesses using unlicensed labour hire providers. And so moving forward from here, will you be checking other facilities now to have a look over their paperwork? Yeah, last, a month ago we attended a range of meat processing facilities uh, and also packaging facilities and we have an ongoing program of attending this industry to ensure that we don't have any dodgy labour hire providers operating in the industry. So it's an ongoing program of field work following extensive engagement with the industry. And just finally... The Labor Hire Authority is a relatively new organisation. It was set up in 2019. How many active prosecutions are you pursuing at the moment? We have quite a few prosecutions uh, before the court and we've secured a number of penalties from the court, which we do media about from time to time. We secured two important prosecution outcomes at the end of last year and uh, further to Uh, other prosecutions earlier in the year and we have a number of matters before court and we have further matters uh, that we're considering filing in court. So it's an ongoing program of enforcement in addition to the investigations and the other activities of the authority. That was Victorian Labor Hire Licensing Commission, Steve Sorry, Steve, Gar- Steve Dargable speaking with reporter Elsie Kennedy. Those investigations are also continuing. And sticking with the supply chain, as the ACCC begins its inquiry into the supermarkets, just how effective would a mandatory code of conduct be? At the moment, the supermarkets only have a voluntary code governing their relationships with farmers, but wholesalers operating through the nation's big central markets are governed by a separate horticulture code. So has this made a difference for farmers or for consumers? David Clawton filed this report. 
Sean McInerney is a wholesaler at the Sydney markets, and he buys and sells fruit and vegetables up and down the East Coast. He says the mandatory Hort Code, which was introduced in 2018, is working pretty well for farmers. Yeah, there's full transparency through the Hort Code. When you're trading on a product on a daily basis, and you're in contact with your suppliers on a daily basis, and they make the decision... He says instead of being price takers, growers can pick or choose which central market they want to sell in. They might have two or three uh, wholesalers in three or four different markets and they're not going to send somebody who's selling in 10 bucks tomorrow when someone else is selling in 15. But do they also know you know, what you've on sold it for and how much money you've made? Sure. Right, so that's something that's got to be published and, and be transparent and visible. He says there are very few cases of product being rejected by wholesalers because it doesn't meet specifications. But that's a big problem for suppliers to the major supermarkets. We know what our suppliers are doing. They know what they're doing. They've got a problem. They let us know. It's very, very rarely that happens. In your view, is that code working effectively to protect you and, and to protect your suppliers? Overall, it is. Uh, it is a little cumbersome. The problem is only about 40% of the nation's fruit and vegetables go through the central markets, and that's mainly sold to restaurants and independent grocers. Sean McInerney says 60% is going through the major supermarkets, and growers face a much tougher time selling to them. Um, The margins are pretty lean. Chris Cope is a consultant who runs Sydney Produce Surveyors, which monitors the prices of fruit and vegetable at the Sydney market. He says there are countless examples of price gouging and unfair practices at the supermarkets. Turmeric on the market is between 10 and about $15 a kilo. It's only a small line, but some of the shops are selling up to $50 a kilo. So the markup is pretty steep. And we, we used to have growers come to us and complain they weren't being paid on time. A whole range of things. He thinks there's a dark side to specials at the big supermarkets as well because they're used to push the price of fruit and veg down at the farm gate. Various times of the year when there were things that are on special, what they do is they, they buy up as much as they can and they dominate the market with their buying power and then they go on special and that forces the market down. What about a mandatory code? We've seen that work quite well in the dairy industry. There's a horticulture code of conduct. Could a mandatory code, on the, like a grocery code, on the supermarkets make a difference? <laughs> That's very interesting. We had one, and we have one now, which I don't know how well it's policed. I haven't, I haven't seen much action on that. In horticulture, you mean? In horticulture. I've seen a couple of merchants prosecuted. But when that time came to introduce that mandatory code of conduct, the chain stores talked their way out of being on it because they said they had their own code within themselves. So that the mandatory code of conduct now is upon the merchants here in the market, whereas Woolworths and Coles were exempt. He worries that growers aren't getting paid enough to be sustainable in the long term. Some of the buyers, some of the, the work for the chain stores, are a little bit ruthless are very ruthless, and they uh, they force the market to uh, to pay you know virtually the cost of production. And uh, we had I had an instance some years ago where I actually wrote an article having a go at, at uh, one of the Coles buyers, and I said to them, "What? There's nothing wrong with high prices. Higher prices mean higher margins, but when you push the prices down so low, it means that the growers don't get anything." And is concerned that farmers will be leaving the industry. 
You've got to have a sustainable industry. You've got to ha- have it for today and and, and for it to be reasonably priced, but you want it for tomorrow and next week and the week after and the year after that. Mick Keogh, Deputy Commissioner of the competition watchdog, the ACCC, says several companies have been fined for breaches of the mandatory horticulture code, with the biggest fine being $240,000 for a South Australian potato processor. The problem there was under the arrangements or the contracts that Matalo had with its suppliers, they had no choice but to deliver all their potatoes to Matalo and where those potatoes didn't make the grade, um, Matalo uh, claimed it had complete discretion in relation to what they would do with those potatoes and the price they would pay for it. So, so you find them 200 and almost quarter of a million dollars. Do you, did you follow up to see whether things got better afterwards? Uh, yes, that, that has substantially changed. They were required by the court to uh, remove um, uh, quite a range of onerous contracts and there have been four or five other uh, matters we've taken and uh, had similar results. So, you know, we think the improvement we see in relation to horticulture is that the least traders are now putting their terms of trade up and entering into a horticultural produce agreement so that growers actually know what the terms of their uh, engagement with their wholesaler is. Previous to that, it was all word of mouth and a handshake and of course when things go wrong, um, it's very difficult to enforce word of mouth and a handshake. The other thing, which is a bit left field, but uh, Chris Cope mentioned that in the US, for example, they have antitrust laws. So the supermarkets in Australia, which have about a 30% share each, might be limited to just 15%. Is that something the ACCC is looking at? Um, we look. It's too early in our consideration to, to talk about what we might recommend, but Certainly, um, the the classic case in the U.S. antitrust uh, uh, is the Bell Telephone Company, which was forcibly broken up. Um, it was uh, it was uh, made to divest in and split itself up because it was considered too dominant. Now that hasn't been a, a power available under competition law in Australia. Um, whether it's um, something that might be considered, um, uh, you know, it's, I guess that's really a question for government, but it will depend, I suspect, on uh, the findings of our uh, investigation and, and, and that will be forthcoming in the, in the next 12 months. Mick Keogh from the ACCC finishing that report from David Clawton. A few of your thoughts coming through on the text line 0467 842 722 is the number there. One from Robin in Euroa saying farmers markets are green woke fiesta. Uh, prices make supermarkets look cheaper. Prices are far too high because sales volumes are low. Thank you for that one. We've also got some more January rainfall figures in. Uh, Alan's text in saying in Avenal it rained six days in January for a total of 200 mils. That's 29 mil more than the first five months of last year. Wow, that's quite a contrast, isn't it, Alan? Uh, if you've got some rainfall figures that you didn't get the chance to text through yesterday, I'll read them out again today. Why not? 0467 842 722. And uh, there's been quite a lot of responses for from... Uh, the review that's expected to be announced uh, around this time today uh, by Energy Infrastructure Commissioner Andrew Dyer, uh, which is set to include new rules to improve community engagement, a blueprint for future wind, solar and transmission projects. I asked what you think needed to be in that report. Uh, Neil from Birdship says wind parks should not have any 
uh, say over what the neighbours are doing within one kilometre of a wind park boundary. Thank you for that. Uh, another one saying solar farms could be installed in the median strips located in most urban freeways, a good way to utilise land that is not used for anything else and that would make electricity uh, that would take electricity to where the greatest demand is. Thank you very much for that. Uh, another one in saying, Jane, from prior experience, we can't trust anything Andrew Dyer says or does. Refer to the wind farm meeting held at Hawksdale Hall. That meeting is all the proof you need that Dyer can't be trusted. And uh, dear ABC Country Hour, in addition to uh, this, and this will be to do with the uh, Labor Hire Authority uh, looking into a number of Labor Hire companies providing workers to meet processing facilities in Melbourne after it found that they were operating unlicensed. Uh, we've got this one in saying to ABC uh, Radio Country Hour, in addition to your interview with the lady in Western Victoria last week, that would be Tammy Jonas from uh, Jonai Farms just outside of Dalesford. They were hoping to make a micro abattoir on their property. That's currently before V. Cat as neighbours weren't uh, impressed with the council, the local Hepburn Shire Council appro- approving that last year. Uh, this person says there's also no abattoirs left in the Goulburn Valley for farmers to access. The closest for us is Wangaratta. That's a long way for our cattle to go from uh, Nathalia to Wangaratta. It's a problem everywhere for our farmers. 0467842722 is the text line. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. And it's 22 minutes past 12. Now, in regional towns, it's always great to have an event in the calendar to look forward to. And coming up at the end of this month is the 8th annual Clunes Quick Shear, and it's back for another action-packed year this year. And Clunes, for people that are unaware, is just north of Ballarat here in Western Victoria. Darcy Gervasconi is a Smeaton farmer and an organiser of the Quick Shear. Darcy, welcome to the Country Hour and welcome to the studio. Thanks, Jane. So what can you tell us about this event? Yeah, well, we're having our 8th annual Clunes Quick Shear on the 24th of February. This is an event that we have been running now, of course, for eight years. It's a community-run event by the Clunes Young Farmers to raise money for a cause that we find is affecting our community or is dear to our members' hearts. This year, we're fundraising for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. In past years, we've done like Beyond Blue, MND, MS, just, yeah. So why the Royal Flying Doctors? Uh, Well, it's an Australian icon, really. They've helped so many people throughout the whole of Australia in isolated rural communities. A lot of people know someone who has been helped by them or saved by them. I personally know someone whose life has been saved by someone from the Royal Flying Doctors. And yeah, they just need all the support they can get to keep doing what they're doing. So we talk about shearathons semi-often on the country hour, but what's a quick shear? What's the difference? So the quick shear is basically, uh, we've got three classes novice, intermediate and open and shear a sheep the quickest, the cleanest that you can. So it's not only uh, the quickness of the shear, it's also the quality? Yes, definitely. So if you hurt a sheep or anything, it's a disqualification. Immediately? Yes, so just the cleanest you can. It's a really good show of skill of the shearers and how quickly and efficiently they can shear a sheep. How far and wide do people come for this event? Uh, We have a lot of shearers that are from New Zealand come across or ones that are already shearing in Australia. Last year, actually, our open shearer, he won with 24.53 seconds. Wow. So real speed and agility that they're showing here. 
So is there prize money on offer for the winner? Yeah, so we got up to $8,000 in prize money to be won over the three classes. And apart from that, in the open class, you will also win the Bushy Memorial Trophy. So Bushy was a local icon from our community, Yashira. He was unfortunately diagnosed with MND a couple of years ago. And we put this trophy on every year just to commemorate him and the great work he did and the fantastic Shearer that he was. So how many people do you expect will uh, rock up? Uh, we're expecting around the 500 plus mark with roughly 60 shearers, but we're always open for more shearers who are interested in coming down. As I said, we're open to all shearing levels right from beginner through to your pros. 500 extra people in Clunes, which is a very small town for people that don't live in uh, the sort of Ballarat region. It's just north of Ballarat uh, and it's quite small. So 500 people is quite significant. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of people and it's great every year. It's an iconic event for the community. Everyone gets around it, everyone gets involved and everyone loves it really. So if people do want to get involved, what do they need to do? Oh yeah, so anyone who wants to enter the shearing, registration is open on the day. Gates open from 2 o'clock, shearing registration opens at 2. The registration will close at 3.30, shearing starts at 3. So as long as you're registered before your event... Anyone can come and it's gold coin donation at the gate entry and that all goes to the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So if people are coming along with the family, uh, is there things to do outside of watching the Shearathon? Yeah, so we've got kids activities that'll be running on the day. We're also going to have a band that's playing after the quick shear so we can all have a bit of a dance the night away. Uh, apart from that, food bar options. There is also the iconic Undy 500 going on. So $5 to enter. You just got to run 250 metres to an obstacle course in your undies for $500 cash. So if you're game enough to have a crack at it, it's a, it's a good win. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour. Jane McNaughton is my name. I'm joined in the studio by local farmer Darcy Gervasconi. Now, Darcy, there's a pretty significant event that's held at this time every year to usually commemorate the end of harvest, and I will see you there tonight. But I don't. I believe it's not quite the end of harvest yet, as uh, many Victorians will have experienced. Uh, the weather has created some challenges. Yeah, the weather hasn't really been our friend for harvest this year. We haven't really had a run that we usually do where we have a week and a half to two weeks of really dry weather so still going unfortunately it is now the 2nd of February <laughs> which is a bit unbelievable a bit late. yeah <laughs> just just a little bit but no so almost finished harvest cutout really <laughs> yeah last time I spoke with you uh on the radio Darcy uh you were working with your dad at the farm but you've also now expanded your career a little bit to become a, a local animal health specialist so how's that going and, and what do you do day to day yeah, so I uh, recently started working in the animal health field with a local business here in Ballarat and it's more or less helping farmers out with their drenches, vaccinations, any problems that arise for them and any queries that they come up with, new products, anything like that. Has there been anything particular that you've noticed as a trend this season? Because obviously, with the again, with the weather, that would, I imagine, create some challenges. Yeah, so flies have been a really bad one just because I had a really wet summer and it's perfect conditions for fly strike. Apart from that, worms are really bad around here again because, again, that wet summer, we haven't had a dry kill-off on them at all. So speaking of livestock, have you been speaking with farmers about uh, the prices of cattle and sheep in particular at the moment? Because we've heard a lot of people on the Country Hour that were frustrated because they sold due to the Bureau of Meteorology's forecast and then it ended up actually being quite a good season as far as pastures go. So have you been hearing those frustrations? 
Uh, a little bit. We've been hearing more the price frustration with because we're Ballarat areas who have a lot of prime land production where farmers weren't getting the prices they were looking for last year and it was really hurting a lot of people. Whereas now this year we're lucky enough that we've seen that price rise since the market to come back after their Christmas break. And a lot of positive thoughts, hopefully, that the market's going to pick up again and farmers are going to be seeing that price that they've been chasing and well deserve. Darcy, thank you very much for coming into the studio and joining us uh, on the Country Hour today. Thanks, Jane. Darcy Gervasconi is a Smeaton farmer and the organiser of the Clunes Quick Shear, the eighth annual event. Uh, you can head online to find some more details about that as well. Just uh, in your favourite browser, write in uh, Clunes Quick Shear 2024. And uh, speaking of the weather across Victoria, we have had some more rainfall texts come in on 0467842722. One from Jill saying that uh, there was 154 mils for January at Tyon North. Thank you for that. Uh, Barry at Kyabram has uh, texted in that there was 92.25 mils in January at Kyabram. Thank you for that, Barry. And a few more thoughts on uh, the review of... Australia's uh, Renewable Energy Connections by Energy Infrastructure Commissioner Andrew Dyer. Uh, this report, which is getting uh, uh, it's getting announced as we speak, I do believe, is set to include new rules to compro- improve community engagement uh, with future wind, solar and transmission projects. Uh, we've got a text in here from Catherine Myers in uh, from Torello, which is just north of Ballarat, and uh, Catherine has been actively involved in... Uh, opposing the Western Renewables link in this part of the world. Uh, Catherine said she'd like to see the Code of Conduct having limitations on the number of landholders compulsory powers can be used for to remind the companies that they are supposed to negotiate in good faith with uh, and ensure that they can do everything that they can from beginning to engage properly with communities. Catherine says she'd like a maximum of 10% of landholders to use the Section 93 powers and a minimum of 10% of landholders using compulsory acquisition. The onus is on the company and they need to ensure they manage relationships well enough with communities so that they can get the access and acquisitions that they need. Thank you, as always, Catherine. And one here from Jeff saying, Hi, Jane. The power connection between Victoria and Tasmania is by a cable. Underground cables should be used in these new schemes instead of utilising 1960s technology. Thank you, Jeff. The text line again is 0467 842 722. Jane McNaughton here with you on the Victorian Country Hour where it's 19 minutes to the next news at one o'clock. But before we get the regional, sorry, before we get the regular news, let's get some rural news. Good afternoon, Emma Field. G'day, Jane. Let's start rural news in Western Australia, where there's growing anger from the farming sector in that state over the handling of a live export ship stranded at Fremantle Port. The MV Bahaji, which has more than 15,000 livestock on board, was ordered to return to Australia on January the 12th due to tensions in the Red Sea. But it's been in limbo without a plan from the Department of Agriculture about what to do with the livestock and whether the ship can resume its journey to Israel. WA Farmers President John Hassel says Agriculture Minister Murray Watt and the department need to do more. Murray Watt hasn't been over here, hasn't answered us whether he's going to meet with us, uh, doesn't seem to be involved in the decision making at all. I think the, the department has been very slow. They've taken nine days to make a decision. I think that's pretty despicable. The ship should have got back here, dealt with and gone, you know, four days before now. 
Senator Watts' office says the minister is legally unable to intervene in the department's actions and says the exporter is responsible for delaying its application to deploy on another voyage. Meanwhile, the RSPCA's Chief Science Officer, Dr Suzanne Fowler, says that thousands of livestock stuck on the vessel need to be released in Australia. Day by day, as those animals stay on that ship, their stress and fatigue is getting worse. If you think about yourself when you're stressed and fatigued for 30 days running, sooner or later that starts to break you and you can no longer cope with the underlying stress that your body's suffering and you generally get sick. We know that that happens in humans and unfortunately it will happen with these animals as well. And still on live export, Northern Australia's live export trade is in limbo, with the cattle industry waiting for Indonesia to issue import permits for 2024. So far this year, there's been no cattle exported from the Darwin port, which is highly unusual, and there's currently two export ships anchored off the NT coast waiting for permits to be issued. Australian Cattle Enterprises Managing Director Patrick Underwood has flown to Jakarta to try and resolve the issue. And yeah, just trying to understand sort of where these permits are because there's um, there's a, a definite need for them, certainly from, from exporters, um, certainly from shipping companies, but also importantly from, from importers. There's, there's actually um, good demand over here at the moment and cattle are selling. And the longer these permit, the permit issue goes, the sort of bigger the the gap in, in supply, which you know, will affect them down the track. And still up north, but this time in WA's Kimberley region, where one, the one highway connecting Kununurra to the rest of eastern Australia remains closed after flooding, leaving cotton growers in the Ord Valley worried about the current, coming season. But Tommy Palmer from CGS managed to find an alternative route after some sleepless nights. You're never quite sure what's going on you know, with the roads after the flood and how long that will be or even when you can get trucks through. So, But it's not something you can um, organise a heap of weeks or months in advance, is it, Cottonseed? I will say it is something that you can organise in advance. This year I'll have my seed <laughs> before Christmas um, because I'll have a cool room. That was uh, the main reason why we didn't get it over. So now you have managed to get your hot little hands on some cottonseed. How did you get it? <laughs> a very stressful afternoon and many a phone calls with our little team. Um, a uh, Cessna caravan was organised and took two hours. Um, it got here yesterday afternoon and the window opens today when someone puts a seed in the ground. So. We could breathe yesterday afternoon. And across to Queensland now, where the Daintree Rainforest is a great place to spot some wildlife on a tour, but at the moment you might see animals of a different kind. Cattle are still stranded amongst Daintree mangroves after the flooding from Cyclone Jasper in mid-December. Local wildlife tour operator Dave White says he's been feeding the cattle. Been finding some, some cows and bulls, young bulls in the mangroves. Uh, one on the island, and uh, I've been feeding them, <laughs> giving them some hay, uh, and just keep an eye on them, and they're doing okay. And sometimes the two things don't go together, crocodiles and, and cows. But um, in my experience, the, our crocs are very uh, lazy. They eat fish and crabs most of the time. That's their normal diet, barramundi mud crabs. And I have actually seen a cow, you know, fall in the river and... Um, and it's splashing around. The crocodile came along and and looked, you know, actually touched the the cow with its nose, 
big four metre crocodile, but um, it didn't do anything. So, a, boat, a lot of kids and I was terrified that Nora was going to happen, but nothing happened. It just looked at it and thought, ah, oh, it's too big. And there you go, Jane, some lazy crocodiles who don't want to chomp on a live cow just to get some prime steak. And that wraps up Rural News. Oh, blowing my mind with Rural News today, Emma Field. Thank you very much, Emma Field in sale there, bringing us up to date with what's going on across the country in Rural News. And uh, it's just been announced that the federal government uh, is announcing changes to backpacker visas, meaning those who volunteer after a natural disaster can extend their visas. Under previous arrangements, working holidaymakers who worked or volunteered in areas affected by floods and bushfires were eligible to apply for a second or third year on their visa. But from today, this work will extend beyond flood and bushfire recovery to other forms of natural disasters such as cyclones or storm surges. And as part of the government's response to the current uh, the recent disasters going on in Queensland and I'm sure we'll bring you more on that uh, next week as we get some reactions from the local community and on the text line zero four six seven eight four two seven double two, we've got 145.5 mils at Mount Beauty for January thank you to Dean now, speaking of the weather, we better get a forecast for the weekend and the week coming ahead. Stephanie Miles joins us now from the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon. Hello, Jane. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, it's a beautiful Friday afternoon here in Ballarat, so looking forward to getting out into it. But uh, what can we expect for this afternoon and the weekend? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's a beautiful day across the state at the moment. There's a bit of crowd in the south that's started to disappear and a lot of sunshine across the north. Uh, we're expecting this afternoon to be a dry day and mostly settled day as well. We've got temperatures in the south anywhere between you know, 20 to 25 degrees and those in the north a little bit warmer in the high 20s to low 30s. So a really nice day and that's all due to a high pressure ridge that's over the state at the moment. And it's really just going to con- continue on to have settled conditions into the weekend. So for Saturday we're expecting quite a warm day. It'll be really sunny and those winds will drop out but it'll allow the temperatures to you know, add a couple of degrees to our maximums. But that's ahead of a really warm day on Sunday. Our winds will turn northwesterly, so it's bringing a lot of the heat that's over central Australia down into our state, and those northwesterly winds will be a little bit gusty too. So we're expecting those places in the south to jump into the high 30s for their temperature forecast, and those places in the north even higher in the low 40s. So Albury-Wodonga getting 40 degrees, Wangaratta 40 degrees, Shepparton 40 degrees, even Swan Hill up to 41, and Mildura up to 43. So a really warm day on Sunday. And in those temperatures and those gusty northwesters, we are expecting a lot of the state to be in a high fire danger rating as well in those places in the northwest, even up to extremes. So please be aware of those ones. However, we do have a cool front that's coming through later in the afternoon. So those places in the southwest will get a little bit of a cool change, mostly in the early afternoon. But unfortunately, those places in the eastern parts of the state not really getting much relief from the heat until overnight Sunday and even into Monday. But in those cooler southwest seas on Monday, we will expect a couple of showers on and south at the ranges and then perhaps a couple of thunderstorms in our northeast as those temperatures stick around a little bit warmer on Monday afternoon before they start to clear out in the afternoon. Then from Tuesday onwards, we've got those cooler temperatures kind of engulfing the whole state. We've got some you know, mid to high 20s around the state and we've got some partly cloudy afternoons. And then from Wednesday and Thursday onwards, it's going to feel a lot like actually what we've got today, Jane. It's a lot more settled from Wednesday onwards. Beautiful. All right. Well, we'll keep uh, nice and cool over the weekend and I hope you uh, have an air conditioner nearby on Sunday. 
Thanks so much, Jane. Have a great afternoon. Cheers. Thank you. Stephanie Miles there from the Bureau of Meteorology. And a few more texts in on uh, the weather. A January rainfall for Huntley is 226 mils, all received over four days. Uh, that one there from Robert Scott. Yeah, it was it, for much part for a lot large parts of the state. A lot of these high rainfall totals did come in a very short period of time. And uh, just in reference to uh, the start of our rural news today, where in Western Australia. There's growing anger from the farming sector over the handling of a live export ship stranded at the Fremantle port. Uh, we've got this one in from Dave from Hamilton saying, Good afternoon. The saga with the live ship boat in the West is just what the government needed to ban the trade. Nearly the last nail in the coffin. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. As many gardeners are out enjoying rapid growth in their veggie patches, they're being urged to look out for signs of fruit fly, which could be tucking into your potential harvest. The pests can breed in many home garden crops that are present in midsummer, such as tomatoes, capsicums, peaches, nectarines and berries, with fruit becoming increasingly with fruit becoming increasingly attractive as it ripens. Agriculture Victoria's statewide fruit fly coordinator, Cathy Mansfield, is urging Victorian home gardeners to take extra steps this summer to protect their produce and also protect neighbouring commercial fruit farms. Queensland fruit fly, this is a key time for it. And there are a lot of crops that are actually available now for it. So tomatoes is a key crop that it will attack. Also berries, peaches capsicums, eggplants, so a whole range of fruit and veggies that it can attack at this time of year. And what should people be looking out for? What are the signs that Queensland fruit fly is in your veggie garden? One of the key things you can look for is like a pinpricked mark on the surface of the fruit, like a little tiny dot, and that will be where the female lays eggs under the surface of the skin, and then the maggots will develop um, and move to the centre of the fruit. So that little spot on the surface of the fruit is what you should look for first, and if you think you've got it, then getting a knife and chopping into the fruit and having a look and seeing if you've got them in the centre of the fruit would be the next step. So when you say maggots, uh, how big are they? Because imagine if it's getting into a, a small capskin, for example, they're not going to be the huge maggots you'd think of of a normal fly. No, no, they're like um, about seven mil- millimetres long. They're very, they're small. Um, and one of the things that you look for is that they, um, they actually act differently to other flies. Quite often you'll see them, if you open up the fruit, they will flick. So they have a different movement to other maggots. So if someone does find these maggots or fruit flies on their fruit or vegetables, what should they do? Well, one of the key things you should do is remove all the fruit and treat it. So one of the ways you can treat it, if there's a small amount, microwave it, heat it up and that'll kill the maggots. You can freeze it in the freezer if you have a huge quantity. So if you find that your whole whole tree is damaged, Pick all the fruit, put it into a plastic bag, leave it in the sun for 14 days. That'll heat it up and kill the larvae. And then just chuck it into the rubbish bin and it'll be fine. So are there ways to prevent fruit fly infesting your veggie patch? Yeah, the best way by far is to apply insect-grade netting. It's netting with a two-millimetre diameter 
aperture. Uh, so a lot smaller than people traditionally have used bird netting in the past, a lot smaller than that. So it's really fine. And that will stop Queensland fruit will actually stop a lot of other pests as well. And you just cover your fruit trees after flowering. And for things like continuously cropping vegetables like tomatoes or capsicums, you try and allow the bees to pollinate the flowers and just cover them when you've got fruit that are a very small size. So what's Agriculture Victoria doing at the moment to try and uh, control fruit flies in the state? Because obviously we used to have an eradication strategy, but now I think it's under management, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, we fund, uh, we've had strategy grants that fund big regional groups in three key horticulture regions of Sunraysia, Goulburn, Murray Valley and Yarra Valley. And those groups are a combination of industry and councils in the community and they've worked together to develop a plan. And this has been going since 2017. And they've actually, they actually do a whole range of different things. So they monitor, they go and talk to people in their home gardens about how to manage fruit fly, they monitor hotspots, they do a range of different things to support the work. And then Agriculture Victoria does a range of other things as well. We've got a really extensive research project that's been doing some great work. And what about pesticides or insecticides? Does Agriculture Victoria spray any areas to try and get fruit fly out of certain key hotspots? No. So what we do is we were the groups actually work on the hotspots and they talk to landholders and teach them how to manage fruit fly in those areas. Queensland fruit fly is quite widespread. And so it's going to take everybody working together to help manage Queensland fruit flies. And that's why we are going directly to home gardens and saying, if you have some of these key crops, protect them so that it protects your crop, but also supports the local industry by not breeding up Queensland fruit flies so they can spread into orchard areas. So you mentioned those three key commercial horticultural areas earlier, Cathy, but should this be something that everyone in the state, even if they're, for example, the same as me, just someone who's in the middle of Ballarat with a little veggie patch should be looking out for? Oh, absolutely, um, Jane. That's a key thing for people to do is to look for um, the damage to see if they've got Queensland fruit fly. Fruit fly is established in Victoria and you can find it across the state. And so it is important for all people to look for those signs of fruit fly and manage it. If you think you might, you can um, get traps that are specific for Queensland fruit fly. And this will give you an indication if you've got fruit fly on your property. So they are specific for Queensland fruit fly. Just having traps is not as good as putting on the netting because the netting will block Queensland fruit fly from getting your crops. But then the traps are a good way of actually working out if you have them there. Agriculture Victoria statewide fruit fly coordinator, Cathy Mansfield there. You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. It is 13 minutes to one o'clock. Now, we were speaking earlier about the... Uh, Australian Energy Infrastructure Commissioner's Community Engagement Review. Uh, the 
federal government has literally just announced uh, their uh, response to this. Uh, so I'll give you a bit of a read from the press release that was uh, just sent to me moments ago. Uh, it's a little bit of a read, so apologies for that. Uh, the Albanese government has welcomed the final report from the Australian Energy Infrastructure Commissioner's Community Engagement Review and has accepted in principle all recommendations. The government commissioned the review to provide advice on more effective ways to engage landowners and communities directly affected by renewable energy transformations and to drive long-term economic and social benefits for these areas. Aging and increasingly unreliable energy assets are retiring from our electricity network. These need to be replaced to make sure everyone has reliable access to reliable, cleaner and cheaper power. We need more renewable projects, renewable energy zones and transmission lines connecting generation to where it's needed. But for the last decade, the Liberal National Party ignored the impact of building new energy assets, such as transmission lines, on regional and rural communities and failed to improve how energy projects are rolled out in these communities. The government is committed to an equitable energy transmission that provides genuine benefits to those involved. Communities with landholders deserve better engagement, which is why the government has accepted in principle all nine recommendations made by Commissioner Mr Andrew Dyer. Now, these include reducing necessary community engagement where infrastructure will not ultimately be located by improving the way the project sites are selected, increasing early local collaboration, revisiting planning and approval processes to be more transparent and streamlined when it comes to community feedback, motivating developers to ensure best practice engagement, improving the complaints handling process, keeping communities better informed on energy transmission goals, benefits and needs, and uh, equitably sharing the benefits from the transformation. So that's uh, from Energy Minister uh, Chris Bowen. That is the uh, the government welcoming the final report from the Australian Energy Infrastructure Commissioner's Community Engagement Review. A few of your thoughts on this on the text line, which is zero four six seven eight four two seven double two saying regarding wind farms last Sunday I overheard a lady in a supermarket car park who was quite annoyed that wind farms and solar farms are using land and as such are severely impacting our food security this is an example of uneducated people forming opinions on wrong information or with little forethought sheep and cattle can still graze under turbines and any cabling is sufficiently deep to allow crops to still be grown that's one text there and another one saying the biggest impact on food supply is councils constantly releasing valuable quality farmland on the edges of towns and cities to be used for housing uh, for our overgrowing population, sorry, ever-growing population, largely due to high levels of immigration. There are some of your thoughts on the text line, 0467 842 722. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. I've certainly heard this phrase a few times. The only good snake is a dead snake. When you bump into a snake on your property, the temptation may be to try and kill it. But there's research that argues snakes like the widely found brown snake can be hugely beneficial to cropping operations and could be a friend to farmers by chomping through thousands of mice. Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Macquarie University, Rick Shine, explains his research. The obvious cost of having venomous snakes like brown snakes around is that they can bite you and you can die. But the reality is that very few people in Australia die from snake bite. It's an average of less than three people a year across the entire country. So the risk is actually much smaller than most people would imagine. And in terms of the benefit, um, 
brown snakes, for example, can be in, incredibly abundant. Um, you know, we did some field work where we had uh, 100 snakes per square kilometre in farmland down near Leeton. Um, that, that's a hell of a lot of brown snakes. You don't see them all that often because they spend most of their time underground. Uh, we had transmitters in snakes, so we, we knew what they were doing. And, and they're basically wandering around down in those burrows catching mice, and they don't actually come out all that often. So, you know, if you've got 100 brown snakes per square kilometre and each of those brown snakes is eating two or three mice per week, you start multiplying those numbers through and you end up with several thousand mice uh, per year being taken out per square kilometre. And that can actually have a big impact on agricultural productivity. Because this is a natural pest killer. Um, the only thing you're required really to do is just to, to leave them alone and let them go about their business. Absolutely. They're, they're a fantastic rodent control officer because they can go down the burrows after the mice. Um, you know, if you're just killing mice on the surface, you're probably getting the adult males that are wandering around looking for girlfriends and so on. Uh, but a, a brown snake can go almost anywhere a mouse can go. And so they're getting rid of the females and the young ones and so on as well. So they're really very effective at doing it. Now, a lot of people might think, well, if I'm letting snakes be and there's more of them around the property, then doesn't that then increase the chances of me getting bitten? Is the, is the cost, you know, to benefit worth it? Yeah, I mean, the other factor that comes in here is that a high proportion of bites come when people try to kill snakes. Um, brown snakes don't want to bite people. They'd much rather run away. Um, but if they're threatened and if they think that they're about to get knocked on the head, then, of course, they will retaliate. So that a policy of tolerating brown snakes is actually reducing the risk of snake bite quite substantially because you don't have a snake that's terrified uh, and is afraid that it's about to get murdered. Do they move around much? I mean, if you've got you know a, a snake that you're aware of on your property that maybe you spot from time to time in the in the same place, can they kind of get used to you or know that you you're not going to hassle them? They certainly don't move all that far most of the time. So the brown snakes that we had radio transmitters in had remarkably small home ranges. Um, you know, they'd, they'd live in a bunch of, of mouse burrows um, for a couple of weeks, clean out all the mice, and then they'd move to the the next adjacent burrow system, you know, 100 metres away. Um, people certainly talk about, you know, look, there's a snake that they've been seeing, um, you know, a couple of times a week for several years, and there's a suggestion, and it's only a suggestion, that those snakes are less of a problem because they know who you are, you know where they are, and they know where the hole is to get away from. So they're, they're much more likely to be able to sort of zip away um, somewhere very close by. If you start killing those snakes and other snakes start wandering in from the far paddocks, you've got an animal that isn't so used to encountering people and it doesn't know where the safe refuges are. And it's probably a more dangerous animal for that reason. Mm. Um, so as you say, it, these snakes, if they're there, they're eating mice. Obviously, if mice population's under control, um, you don't need a lot of mice to, to sustain crop damage. So if they're taking those mice out of that ecosystem, that's a benefit for everybody. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, of course, the other, you know, the common method that people use to control mice is um, chemicals, very toxic chemicals. Um, and so that raises the risk of secondary poisoning. You know, that poison mouse comes stumbling around, lies out there and dies. Uh, the pet dog finds it, meets it. The galena eats it, uh, the um, the owl, and so on, and you can have all kinds of 
secondary effects of having these rather nasty chemicals around. So, you know, that's another benefit as well for, for tolerating brown snakes, especially out in the far paddocks where they're very unlikely to come wandering in through your back door. There'll be situations where there's a snake in a place that you, you simply don't want it to be, um, and hopefully you'll, you'll get a licensed snake catcher to come and remove it rather than hit it on the head. Uh, you know, that's, that's up to people to make that decision as to how to deal with it. But particularly if you're, if you're out there on the paddocks a fair way from, from the house, that snake is probably doing you a hell of a lot more good than it is harm. Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Macquarie University, Rick Shine speaking there. What do you think? Do you like having snakes on your property? 0467842722 is the text number. And Jeff has messaged in saying, do tiger snakes react the same way as browns? Jeff, I'm not too sure. But South Australian snake catcher David Miles says, unfortunately, he still does hear that people are killing snakes instead of calling for professionals to safely catch and relocate them. They're part of nature. They don't want to be near us and... Like a lot of people that get bitten are trying to kill snakes. A lot of farmers that I talk to now, if they see one near the house, they'll try and get rid of it. But if it's out in the paddock, they leave them. And that's the way it should be. And when you say get rid of them, not kill them, just move them? Yeah, well, (laughs) some of them kill them. Uh, I mean, the old farmers in particular were always taught and they taught their kids to kill a snake if they saw one. Is that changing at all, do you think? Are they getting better with moving them as opposed to killing them? Yes, I think think they are. And I think part of what I'm doing, making people aware of what these snakes are all about, I think that's helping quite a lot. Do you ever get requests from farmers to pop a snake back on their property? <laughs> Not too many people are over keen on that. South Australian snake catcher David Miles speaking there with Elsie Ardemo. Uh, a few texts on this topic coming through on 0467842722. Uh, brown snakes are the most aggressive type and will attack without being threatened. Thank you for that from Graham from Yanaki. And uh, this one saying snakes don't eat too many mice. Better off without the snakes. What are your thoughts? 0467842722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. And just before we finish up for the week this week on the Country Hour, we've got a few more texts in talking about the review by Energy uh, Infrastructure Commissioner Andrew Dyer that's just been released and welcomed by the federal government. Uh, We've got a picture in here uh, coming from the Portland area which shows uh, some wind turbines uh, that are, in this person's uh, assessment, spewing out oil. This person says, great for the environment, spewing out oil. Is this really the future of the Portland coast area? Uh, we've also got one in saying uh, farmers at Berrybank were stopped from spraying crops because the chemicals were affecting the blades' surfaces. Thank you for your text message. Uh, and one in here from Jay saying, great week. Uh, Jane, great week. Loved it. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. But Warwick Long will be back on your airways from Monday and just a reminder we've also got the rural reports on Monday morning as well uh, but Warwick will be a very energetic I'm sure when he gets back from a little bit of leave uh, and also just on programming notes this afternoon our statewide drive will not be uh, on your radio due to the cricket if you don't want to listen to the cricket though you can tune in to ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria on the ABC Listen app. 
I've really enjoyed the La Pass fortnight speaking with you. Thank you so much for letting me know what you're doing, what you're thinking, uh, and all of your opinions on the many, many topics we've spoken about over the past fortnight. Have a great weekend. Try and stay nice and cool. But now it's news time, one o'clock. Music.